Would you turn with me to the 16th chapter of the book of Acts, Acts 16. Luke uh, introduces us here in chapter 16 to Paul's second missionary journey. And uh, chapters 16, 17, and a portion of chapter 18 will be concerned with that, uh, that trip. If you recall, chapters 13 and 14 uh, were a review of the events in Paul's first missionary journey. In order to give you an overview of that, uh, of that journey, it would be good, I think, to look at the map and note some of the place names that we're going to be talking about. One of the problems with these names is that they're just not familiar to us, and it's hard for us to believe that these are real people who lived in real places. Who ever heard of Amphipolis and Apollonia? We've all heard of uh, Star and Eagle and Boise and Mountain Home, but uh, these are unknown place names to us, and we need to get them fixed at least on a map, if not in our minds, so that we know that, that we're talking about, uh, about real people. If you look at the map, in the, on the right side of the map, you'll see Syria, and just above Syria, the city of Antioch, on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. This was the sending church for the second missionary journey. They sent out Paul and Silas. They traveled through uh, Cilicia and Galatia, revisiting the churches that were found on, that they founded on their first missionary journey, the churches at Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. Then uh, Paul picked up Timothy in Lystra, that was probably his hometown, and they traveled through Phrygia to Troas. Troas was the port of call for a journey for any uh, travel into Europe. They uh, booked passage on a ship at Troas, sailed across the Aegean to the little island of uh, Samothrace, and then to Neapolis, which was the uh, seaport for the city of Philippi. Then up to Philippi itself, over to Amphipolis, Apollonia, Thessalonica, Berea. And then uh, he took passage again aboard ship, sailing down to Athens and then to Corinth. And then across the Aegean to Ephesus. And then across the Mediterranean to Caesarea and back to the church where he made his report. Now, at least when we come across these names in, uh, the, in the chapters that follow, you'll know where they, uh, where they are. Let's uh, begin reading with chapter 16, verse 6. They made their way through Phrygia and Galatia, but the Holy Spirit prevented them from speaking God's message in Asia. When they came to Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but again the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. So they passed by Mysia and came down to Troas, where one night Paul had a vision of a Macedonian man standing and appealing to him in the words, Come over to Macedonia and help us. As soon as Paul had seen this vision, we made every effort to go on to Macedonia, convinced that God had called us to give them the good news. This is the uh, setting, obviously, for the events that, uh, that follow. Just a couple or three things to note. The first is that Luke joined them in Troas. You'll notice that the pronouns change from the third person plural they to the first person plural we. So now you have a, a first person eyewitness account on through the rest of chapter 16. Evidently, Paul uh, uh, ran into uh, Luke in the city of Troas, and Luke left his medical practice there and accompanied Paul and Silas and Timothy on uh, to Europe. We don't know exactly why Paul uh, 
found Timothy or whether or Luke, whether he looked him up or whether he fell ill at that point and was looking for a physician. So we're simply not given any facts, but we do know that Luke joined uh, the group at, at this point and accompanied them on to Philippi. Chapter 17 and chapter 17, verse 1, there's a shift back to the third person plural again, they, which would indicate that Luke stayed behind in Philippi and was uh, a part of that body encouraging and teaching uh, the Christians there. Another thing I would note about this paragraph is the way in which the Lord, as Dick Hillis uh, would put it, orchestrated events. Remember that phrase? He used it over and over again. It's very obvious that the Lord is the Lord of the church. He's the one who's giving direction to these missionaries. He, uh, in some way, prohibited them from going into Asia it was evidently Paul's command to go straight, or Paul's desire to go straight across Turkey to the city of Ephesus, which was located in the province of Asia. But uh, the Lord uh, frustrated that attempt. We don't know how he did it. He just said, uh, that's not the place to go, Paul. That's, that's later. The timing is often, as you know, Paul did later go to Ephesus. But it was not God's will at this time for him to go to that city. And then he tried to go north into Bithynia, and, and he, was, he was frustrated again in his attempts. Luke says the Spirit of Jesus prohibited him from going into Bithynia. Now, we can guess as to the reason. That was evidently Peter's province. That's where Peter went and established uh, churches at a later date. As you read through his epistles, he refers to the churches in Bithynia. So that was uh, his territory, and Paul was directed elsewhere. He was sent on to Troas, or ancient Troy, where the Trojan War was, was fought. And it was in Troas that he received a, a vision from the man of Macedonia. Now, we have no idea who this man was. Some think it's uh, Luke himself. One, reader, I, one writer I read this past week said it was Alexander the Great. I have no idea how he came up with that, uh, that identification. We're simply not told. He was a man who was dressed like a Macedonian. Apparently, Paul recognized that he was from that region. And he issued a call to the uh, apostles to come on over to Macedonia and help us. It would be very much like uh, having a dream or seeing a vision some night of a, of a man dressed uh, like an Arab sheikh sitting in his Mercedes saying, come over to Saudi Arabia and help us. That's, that's the sort of thing that uh, Paul saw, and that determined the direction for this uh, body of missionaries. Now, it, it just says again to me that, that our Lord is the Lord of the church. He's the one that gives us direction. The speed with which a church develops, the direction in which it goes, all of that is solely God's prerogative. He's the Lord of the church. He is, as Peter puts it, the chief shepherd. He is the head pastor, not only of the church at large, but of this church as well. Uh, we don't have a head pastor here at Cole. I am not the head pastor. I am not the boss. Uh, unfortunately, in, in many churches, we've picked up our, our, our method of administration from secular organizations. And there's nothing wrong with having a, a boss in a secular operation. But in the church, it's the Lord who gives leadership to the church. He's the chief executive. He's the head pastor. Uh, he, he gives the directives. And it's our responsibility as elders to determine his will for this body of believers. Now, again, we're not always right. 
We make mistakes. No group of men are infallible, just as no individual, individual is infallible. But it's our intention to discern God's will for this church and carry it out, because He is the chief executive of this body. Now, it's very clear in following through this account that that's exactly what, what happens. He checks them in one place. He sends them in another direction. He's the one who determines the strategy by which the Western world will be reached by the gospel. Now, we're not told how he did this. Uh, we have the one instance of a vision, but in the other cases, we're simply not told. Which leads me again to believe that God has any number of ways of directing us. You, you never know about God. You can never anticipate how he's going to direct you. All we need to know is that he will give direction. All I have to do is want it. And if I want God's will, and if I'm God's man or God's woman in the situation in which I've been placed, then it becomes God's problem to get me to the right place at the right time. I don't know how he'll do that. I just have to trust him. Paul says, if we present our bodies a living sacrifice, then we will know what is his good and acceptable and perfect will. Of, uh, will. Now, there are some of you now that are thinking of going overseas. You don't know where you're going. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. God has the strategy in mind. He knows where you are to go, and he'll reveal it at the proper time. But uh, for the present, all you need to do is trust him right where you are and be God's person in the situation in which you've been placed. And at the proper time, he'll give you the direction that you need. Now, that's, that's clearly what's happening to uh, this band of missionaries. The Lord of the church is directing them as he sees fit. In verse 11, we read that they set sail from Troas, and they ran a straight course to Samothrace. That is, the winds were favorable. They were able to sail directly to this little island of Samos out in the middle of the Aegean Sea. And on the following day to Neapolis, which was the seaport of Philippi, and then along the Ignatian Way, the Roman road that was built across the northern part of Greece that linked the Aegean and Adriatic Seas, they made their way up that road to Philippi, a Roman garrison town, and the chief city in that part of Macedonia. Uh, this is apparently not said for Theophilus' uh, sake. He is the person uh, that this letter was written to. He, would, being a Roman official, would know very well what the city of Philippi was. It's apparently an attempt to uh, indicate something of Paul's strategy. Macedonia was divided into four divisions, four sections, four districts, and Philippi was the chief city in one of those and a very strategic city, but a very tough city to crack. It was a Roman city, uh, a little bit of Rome in the midst of Greek culture, it transplanted Roman culture uh, out of Italy into a, a, one of the uh, more primitive districts of the Roman, Roman Empire. About a century before, one of the Roman emperors, Augustus, Augustus had uh, granted Roman status to this city, and everyone who lived there was considered a Roman citizen. There were a lot of Roman soldiers there. Uh, it was a big, bustling, uh, metropolitan area and a very difficult city to reach. Apparently, there were no Jewish men in the city. And if they were, if there were, they were keeping their identity quiet because they wouldn't be able to work in the city. There was a strong anti-Semitic spirit. There was no point of contact for Paul. His, his pattern was normally to go to a synagogue. That would be the, 
this, the place of entree in, into the city. But uh, there was no place for Paul to make contact with his Jewish countrymen. It was difficult. How do you, how do you break into a, a culture like that? How do you reach your uh, office, your neighborhood, your classroom? God doesn't call you to reach the entire city of Boise or the whole state of Idaho, but he's given you a sphere of influence, your, your neighborhood, your cul-de-sac, your classroom, your office, your workshop. That's your sphere of influence. And the question comes to all of our minds, how do we reach this segment of society, these people who seem so indifferent to spiritual things? What steps should we take? Well, Paul didn't know any more than, than we do. Luke says they spent some days in Philippi, wandering through the city, looking at the Roman architecture and wondering where to begin. Uh, I can remember years ago when I first started working with university students wandering across the campus at night wondering where to start there's a vast campus 12 to 15,000 students that came from the top 1% of high schools all across the United States where do you, how do you reach them how do you start where do you begin and that was the Paul, that was the problem that that Paul faced well Luke tells us that on the sabbath day they went out of the city gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place for prayer. There we sat down and spoke to the women who had assembled. One of our hearers was a woman named Lydia. She came from Thyatira and was a dealer in purple dyed cloth. She was already a believer in God and he opened her heart to accept Paul's words. When she and her household had been baptized, she appealed to us saying, if you are satisfied that I'm a true believer in the Lord, then come down to my house and stay there. And she insisted on our doing so. According to Jewish tradition, it took ten men in a city to establish a synagogue. That was a minyan or a number that was necessary. And evidently there, were not, there weren't ten men. As a matter of fact, uh, there appear to be no Jewish men in the city, at least none that would declare themselves. And, and the only point of contact that Paul had was a, was a group of women Apparently the wives of Roman soldiers, or in the case of Lydia, a single businesswoman, a Gentile, who were meeting for prayer down by the riverside. There's a little creek called the Ganges that runs right near Philippi. And, and they gathered there even either in a home or out in an open field uh, to worship as best they uh, could. And Paul saw the potential in that group of women. Now, Paul is often pointed out as... Uh, a premium example of male chauvinism. But uh, Paul realized the enormous potential that women have to shape society. And it's not merely that the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. It's not merely the influence that a woman can have through her family, but the influence that she can have on society at, at large. Uh, they are very often the power behind the throne, but they often are, pow are power directly in their influence on their uh, sphere of, of friends and their, their business contacts. And what happened is that as Paul preached to this group of women, there was one woman there, whose name was Lydia, who listened attentively. She's described as a God-fearer. That is, she was a Gentile who had attached herself to Judaism because she had a, a yearning for the things of God had found nothing to 
assuaged that, that yearning in the Gentile world, in the pagan religion, so she had attached herself to this group of Jewish women. And she was worshiping with them. And as Paul preached, the light dawned, and she said, Aha, that's it. That's what I've been looking for. Jesus is the, is, is the Lord. And uh, she opened up her heart. Now, I like to uh, update these people because if we think of them as dressed in uh, togas and first century uh, garb, they tend to lose relevance for us. I, I think of, uh, of uh, Lydia much as a first century Mary Cunningham, the uh, wife of William Agee, you know. Uh, she was, I like to think of her as very smartly dressed, a very bright, intelligent woman who was competing in the marketplace with the Roman men and succeeding. She was a businesswoman, which, which was something of an anomaly in those days. She was a she sold purple garments. These were this was a very exotic, uh, expensive fabric. She was evidently an agent for some uh, operation in Thyatira. We're told, and she was doing very well. She had a large home, had a number of servants. She was a single woman, and a, a very influential and successful businesswoman in Philippi. And God opened her heart, and she opened her home. The, the, the way Luke words this account indicates that she begged these people to come into her home. She realized that was one thing she could do for them immediately. They needed a place to meet at a fledgling church, no place to, to gather. So she opened her home. She didn't wait until she bought a new carpet. Didn't wait until she had her drapes clean or the hole in the sofa fixed. She just opened up her home, made it available. That's what she had. So, because God had opened up her heart, she opened up her home. She didn't wait until she got married. She didn't wait until she had children. One of the problems for single people is that they think they cannot serve God in their, in, in their present state. When they have a normal family, that is, a husband or a wife and children, then they can serve God. But uh, that's not so. We can begin right where we are to serve God. Simply make ourselves available, as Lydia did. I, uh, I guess I don't. Hmm. I had a um, quote from Tim Stafford. Is it over there? You watch, it'll turn up just about the time I'm through. Oh, here it is. This is a, a quote from Tim Stafford, uh, writing in Leadership Magazine on the theme of women, single women in missions. And uh, he, he describes uh, women missionaries in missionary conferences like uh, a fish on the wall. He says they're out of context. They're out of their environment. They have no juice, he said. They uh, look like um, their clothes were made for a sawhorse. But uh, he says you have to see them in action to appreciate them because they are out of context. When you see them in the mission field, you see something of the impact that, that they're having. And he writes on, It is no easy job to be single in our churches. Women in particular, when they reach a certain age, become objects of pity. But once women arrive overseas, no pity is wasted on them. They are given tough work to do. Arlene, for example, came to Kenya as a poor candidate for adventure. She was very particular that things be done just so. 
She easily dissolved into tears, especially at a word of criticism, yet she could be critical and perfectionistic with others. No one who knew her would have chosen to send her to the Turkana region, but the denomination did. Turkana is a desolate sort of hell where people die on your doorstep of starvation, knife wounds, and crocodile bites. No doctor lives within a practical distance, so the few nurses there practice everything short of heart surgery. The heat, the isolation, the scorpions, the midnight knocks at your door, surely not the atmosphere for Arlene. She went for two months without piped water. When she got it, she noticed a foul taste after a month and discovered one dead disintegrating lizard and one similarly conditioned bat in the water tank. No transfer was available. Someone had to be there, and qualified nurses were in short supply, so she struck out. So she stuck it out, excuse me. <laughs> A transformation took place. She gained confidence. Tears diminished. Tensions with other staff, often high in such conditions, lessened. She adapted to working in an environment where perfectionism is absurd, and what resulted was a fine drive to get work done with less nitpicking. I've done things I never thought I could do and that others didn't think I could do, she told me. I didn't always like it. Some aspects I hate, but now I would never work in another environment. So it often happens when people are pushed to do what they did not think they could. They gain confidence in God, and they become not only more productive, but easier to live with. Isn't that what Jesus said? If we give our lives away, we'll find them. If we try to find ourselves or keep ourselves, we'll lose ourselves. If we try to protect ourselves and our environment and our homes and our persons and our privacy and our rights, we'll lose ourselves. We'll become more and more miserable and difficult to live with. But if we give ourselves away, we're, we're much nicer to live with. Life takes on a different, uh, a different look. We have a different perspective on things. There's joy and excitement in serving. Now, that's what Lydia did. Simply made herself available, and a church was planted in her house. And uh, uh, history might well record that was the greatest event in the history of Western civilization because it was from that beginning that the church rolled on to the West, through Europe, into Spain, into the interior of, of Germany by uh, the middle of the, of the second century, and on to us, all because she was willing to make herself available. Now Luke continues in verse 16. One day while we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a young girl who had a spirit of clairvoyance. The word literally means the spirit of a python. Now, uh, don't think of that large snake with the big teeth that likes to hug. That's uh, not the python he has in mind here. The name python was given to that snake because it's a, it's a monster that comes out of Greek uh, mythology. Supposedly, the god Apollo slew a dragon that was called Python. And uh, by so doing, he gained the ability to predict the future. And this ability then he gave to other people, and specifically a group of women, a guild of women that were called Pythonesses. They evidently had the ability to predict the future with some degree of accuracy and were often consulted for oracles. The ancient writers... Greek and Roman writers refer to them. They were quartered first at Delphi and then spread all over the ancient world. And they were able to uh, determine, to some degree, a person's destiny and future because they were demon-possessed, as Luke makes it very clear. This uh, young woman began to follow them about. Uh, Luke uh, tells us that uh, she followed Paul and the rest of us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, and they are telling you the way of salvation. 
She continued this behavior for many days, and then Paul, in a burst of irritation, turned around and spoke to the Spirit in her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Uh, she tagged along after the apostles for some days, speaking what seems to be the truth. These men are servants of the Most High God, declaring to you the, or as you have in the margin of some Bibles, a way of salvation. Paul finally became so irritated, not at her, but at the demon, that he turned around and, and exercised the, uh, the demon. Now the question we ask is, why did Paul stop this uh, demon from witnessing to what appears to be the truth? Well, it may be that the demon was saying, these men are declaring a way of salvation. And as so many cults do indicate that uh, Christianity is simply one option among, among many, that's a possibility. But if we take it as most of the translations stand, they were speaking truth. Paul was simply doing what, what our Lord did. Jesus wouldn't permit the demons to speak even though they speak truth. Because the character of the witness is important. James says the demons have it straight. They know as much theology as we know and probably more. And they, they know it well. And they're very accurate in their understanding of biblical truth. But they're not permitted to give witness because their demonic character has never been changed. It says something about the character of Christian witness. Uh, there are some Christians that, uh, that I wish would never say a word because they diminish the impact of the gospel because their lives are not in order. Now, this doesn't mean we have to have it all down. We have to be perfect because who of us could give witness? But it does mean that the intention of our heart ought to be to live out the truth as we, uh, as we proclaim it. And because uh, these demons were demonic in their character, Paul simply wouldn't permit them to, uh, to speak. He exercised the demon, and presumably this young woman became a member of the church in Philippi. We're not told, but I would believe because she had followed them that there is some indication of the yearning of her heart. She wanted the truth these men were proclaiming. And the Lord opened her heart as well, and she became a member of this, uh, this church in Lydia's house. And I like to envision Lydia uh, sitting in her living room uh, with her tweed suit on, sitting right next to this former demon-possessed uh, little street urchin, and loving her and accepting her, because that's what the gospel does. It breaks down all of these barriers that, that we erect, education, culture, race, uh, income, economic state, whatever. These things don't matter. The gospel causes all of those to break down. We, get, we are a body united around, around Christ. Now, uh, Luke tells us that when the demon came out, when he was exercised, that the girl's owners lost their hope of making any money. Luke does a, a clever thing. The verb that's translated disappeared in my translation. Their hope of making money out of her had disappeared is the same verb as translated uh, come out with reference to the demon. So when Paul exercised the demon, he also exercised their prophet. And that uh, riled them up. They uh, created a disturbance in the city, saying these men are Jews. Uh, again, an indication of the anti-Semitic spirit in Philippi. Proclaiming customs, which it is illegal for us as Roman citizens to accept or practice. At this, the crowd joined in the attack, and the magistrates had them stripped and ordered them to be beaten with rods. They were stripped and beaten summarily without trial. 
And uh, after they were beaten, they were thrown into prison where they instructed the jailer, the magistrates instructed the jailer to keep them safe. On receiving such strict orders, he hustled them into the inner jail and fastened their feet securely in the stocks. They were placed in the maximum security portion of the uh, prison back where you have to pump uh, air and light to people. And uh, it was evidently very dark later when uh, the prisoner tried to, or when the jailer hoped to find them, he had to light a lamp in order to uh, discover where they were. So it must have been very dark and damp. It was wintertime. It was very uh, cold. Their feet were in stocks, which were not the wooden stocks that we normally associate with this, worm, with this word, but metal bracelets that were fastened on their, on their legs. Um, a number of years ago, I was in Philippi with my friend John Landreth, who just uh, recently went to be with the Lord. And uh, we went to see the old city, which has been reconstructed to some extent, at least the forum has. And we found the jail site. There was a little plaque that, that indicated the uh, traditional site of the jail. And we, there was no one else in the city. It was uh, completely abandoned. It was a real cold, uh, dark, overcast, rainy day. And we went down into the jail, found what we thought was the inner sanctum, and uh, sat on the floor and sang, Great is thy faithfulness. And uh, after a few minutes, uh, a Greek gentleman came down. He had his little Greek sailor's hat and an overcoat on, and he stuck his head in the door and, and looked in. He was the caretaker, and he wondered what in the world these uh, crazy Americans were do, sitting, doing sitting on the floor of his jail singing, uh, Great is thy faithfulness. And John said in the words of, of Paul, don't be afraid, we're all here, he said. <laughs> verse uh, 25, Luke says about midnight, which is the worst time of the night. That's when your energy level is at its lowest and when you're, you're most inclined to be depressed and discouraged. Paul and Silas were moaning and complaining and crying and griping at the injustice of it all which is, uh, if Luke were writing this about me, I suspect that's what he would have to write. They, 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 had, they were doing what God had called them to do. They were faithful to their call. And uh, this was a terrible injustice that they had received. And uh, I suspect that many of us would have been uh, greatly upset, and uh, we would be complaining and full of self-pity, but uh, not, not Paul and Silas. They were praying and singing hymns to God while the other prisoners were listening to them. The word means listening intently. They were overwhelmed by uh, the witness of these men. Suddenly there was a great earthquake big enough to shake the foundations of the prison. Immediately all the doors flew open and everyone's chains were unfastened. As someone has said, this was the first sacred concert in Europe and Paul and Silas brought the house down. <clears throat> the uh, doors flew open. The fact that he uses a plural form of the noun indicates there were a series of doors that, that swung open when the earthquake struck. The building itself didn't fall down, but it was shaken to the foundations. The doors swung open. The staples that held their chains to the wall uh, fell out. The mortar between the stones evidently uh, was shaken loose. And uh, when the jailer awoke, his house was evidently over the top of the, uh, of the jail. 
and saw that the doors of the prison had been opened, he drew his sword and, and was on the point of killing himself. He was going to commit suicide because he knew what would happen to him when the Roman authorities found out that his charges had escaped. He imagined that all the prisoners had escaped. But Paul called out to him at the top of his voice, Don't hurt yourself. We're all here. Then the jailer called for lights, rushed in, trembling all over, and fell at the feet of Paul and Silas. He led them outside and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I really question if that jailer would have asked that question if Paul and Silas had been responding to their bonds the way most of us respond to our stress and the distressing circumstances of our life. When we complain about the government and the way things are going, and we complain about the economy, and we complain because our professor is too hard or too harsh, or we complain about our, our working situations or how difficult our employer is to work with, or we complain because we're single, or we complain because we're married, or we complain because we have children, and on and on it goes, who in the world is going to walk up to me and say, I'd like to be just like you? <laughs> but you see, that, it, it's that, it was that spirit of, of optimism and joy in the face of, of distressing circumstances that, that caused the jailer to say, what can I do to be delivered from my fear, from my anxiety, from my frustration, my self-pity, my depression, see? And Paul later, when he writes to the church in Philippi, says, uh, Unto you it is graciously given on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in his name, but also to suffer for his sake. Now, non-Christians suffer also, but we suffer for a different reason. We suffer for Christ's sake. So when people see us joyful in the midst of our, of our distress, they'll see that there's some power at work in us that cannot be explained merely in terms of our personality or our education or our background or experience. And they want to be delivered. They want to be like, like us. And that's why this man approached them. And you know... Uh, Peter's answer, they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and then you will be saved. You and your household, the two subjects, you and your household, are governed by the, by the two verbs, believe and you will be saved. In other words, he did not say to the jailer, You be saved, and your house, you, you believe, and your household will be saved along with you. Uh, the force of, of the sentence and of Paul's statement is that if you and your household believe, you and your household will be saved. And uh, then they told him and all the members of his household the message of God. And there and then, in the middle of the night, he took them aside and washed their wounds. And he himself and all of his family were baptized without delay. Then he took them into his house. Again, having opened up his heart, he opened up his home to them and offered them food. He and his whole, whole household overjoyed at finding faith in God. So now we have another uh, number of members, actually, for the new church in Philippi. There is an upper-class businesswoman, Lydia, and, and her household, and a lower-class slave girl, and a middle-class uh, Roman soldier and his family all joined uh, with this uh, church in Lydia's house. Now, the sequel follows in verses 35. And following, when morning came, the magistrates sent their constables with the message, Let these men go. The jailer reported this message to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to have you released, so now you can leave this place and go on your way in, in peace. 
the magistrates, I'm sure, were having second thoughts about what they had done, perhaps as a result of the earthquake or the word had spread rapidly that these men were free now and uh, were being held in the uh, jailer's home. And so they sent to have them released quietly. They probably wanted them to uh, simply leave the city so it would appear that they escaped and, and that way the magistrates would be off the hook. But Paul said to the constables, they beat us publicly without any kind of trial. They threw us into prison despite the fact that we are Roman citizens. And now do they want to get, want to get rid of us in this underhand way? Oh no, let them come and, and take us out themselves. The constables then reported this to the magistrates who were thoroughly alarmed when they learned they were Romans because by Roman law they were not to inflict uh, this sort of degrading punishment on Roman citizens. So they were in big trouble and they knew it. And they came to the, to the prison. Uh, they came in person with their hats in their hands and apologized to them. And after taking them outside the prison, requested them to leave the city. But on leaving the prison, Paul and Silas went to Lydia's house, and when they had seen the brothers and given, given them fresh courage, they took their leave. It seems to me that Paul did this not in order to uh, establish his own rights, but rather to establish the rights of the early church. He wanted to protect them and ensure that he could return to the city of Philippi whenever it was, was necessary. And so he appealed in this case, to his Roman citizenship, where apparently before, when he was taken out uh, and, uh, and beaten, he did not, but he wanted to protect the church. Then he went back to Lydia's house, and he encouraged the believers there to go on in their life with God. The uh, emperor at this time was uh, Claudius, who was a historian, and uh, Claudius, in, any, in, in none of his histories, even mentions the uh, Christian church, as far as I know, and yet... In terms of, of, of the history of the Roman Empire and of Western civilization and our own history, this, as I said before, is probably the greatest event that occurred. The gospel began, or the church began in Europe, in Lydia's house, and uh, spread on to Thessalonica and then to Berea, into Athens, the capital, in Corinth, and then on into Italy, and uh, the capital of the Roman Empire, Rome and on to Spain, and into uh, Germany, and Britain, and then on to the, the Western world, uh, North America. And all of this because one woman was willing to open her home. She made herself available to God. Now, I have no idea what God wants to do through your life and mine. I simply want to be a part of what He's going to do, and I know you do as well. Uh, there's no end to what He can do if we simply make ourselves available. That's all He wants. A life that's available to him, it may mean your home. Uh, before you get an opportunity to do anything to your home or change your, your status, you can simply say, God, here I am. Here's my house, my apartment. Here's my automobile. Here's my body. Here's everything that I have and everything that I am available to you. And as Paul puts it, he is able to do exceeding abundantly above anything we may ask or think. Let's stand. We'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, when we read these uh, stories of, of conquest, our, our minds are excited. And we want to be a part of it. And at the same time, Lord, we realize how inadequate and, and uh, weak we are, limited in our resources and our ability, lacking in knowledge, 
lacking in courage. We thank you that it does not depend upon us. Our sufficiency, we know, is not from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from you, who has qualified us to be ministers of the new covenant. All of us. And so we simply want you to have our lives and put ourselves at your disposal again this morning to be used as you see fit. Use us in our neighborhoods, in our classrooms, and offices, and farms, wherever we go, to be sources of light and, and truth. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.